Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice, where you get a new, approachable perspective on the guidelines and concepts that drive our practice in pediatrics. I'm Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America, and today I'm going to make some unlikely analogies that will have you thinking about your own practice habits, your understanding of evidence-based guidelines, and what the literature really says. I was a bit of a quirky kid, you might say. I marched to the beat of my own drum and was a spirited and opinionated child who wanted to express herself as an individual. You know the type. My favorite outfit in fourth grade was blue corduroy pants with a white mock turtleneck sweater paired with a pair of bright red suspenders from the 1970s that I found in my dad's sock drawer, knockoff green Birkenstocks with socks, and topped off with, wait for it, a beret. I specifically remember getting out of the car in the kiss-and-go lane at elementary school feeling rad, because that was what you called it back then, and thinking to myself, I look good. But now, decades later, it's kind of cringeworthy and laughable. But I was 10, so what does it matter? Fashion is not unlike evidence-based practice. There are national authorities on the subject. Think Vogue and Beyonce, and we can choose to listen to them or not. Although I wouldn't recommend it, it's totally your choice to ignore the convention to never wear white after Labor Day or cargo shorts any time of the year. But the evidence is not really clear on fanny packs. Let's be honest, the hipsters make them look really cool with high-waisted mom jeans and clear-rimmed glasses. And I'm never really certain whether my purse has to match my shoes. I'm low-key kidding, but at the same time, I hope that this everyday example can help you relate to situations surrounding unclear management recommendations, provider practice variation, or non-adherence to evidence-based guidelines that we see in pediatric healthcare all the time. Take, for instance, our discussion this week on bronchiolitis and the 2018 Condella et al. article from the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine entitled, Multicenter Study of Albuterol Use Among Infants Hospitalized with Bronchiolitis. We all know that the 2014 AAP Clinical Practice Guidelines on the Management of Acute Bronchiolitis recommend against bronchodilator use in these patients, yet there are still so many providers who do a trial of albuterol just to see if it works. This article sought to investigate factors associated with albuterol use in the emergency department or primary care for infants who were inevitably hospitalized for bronchiolitis management, which means that they had moderate to severe disease. Half of the patients, 99% of whom were infants in their sample, received pre-admission albuterol, which goes against the AAP recommendations. Admittedly, their data was from 2011 to 2014, so providers would not have had the benefit of the most recent publication to support their decisions. But our class discussion of the article led to the stunning revelation that this same practice still exists, seven years after the publication of the guidelines. Students from all sorts of pediatric backgrounds in various parts of the country remarked that an albuterol trial to assess for response was ubiquitous. We even got DISH on one center that used continuous albuterol and steroids, another no-no from the guidelines. And I understand the dilemma. You hear wheezing, you see distress, you immediately fall back on what you think you know. 
Albuterol and steroids work to open the airway, right? You clearly have good company, according to this article. We wouldn't see this practice continue if there weren't some patients who responded to an albuterol trial, and the article suggests that in addition to local culture, there are some patient populations who are more likely to receive this treatment, notably older infants, those with wheezing documented pre-admission, and those who have previously responded to albuterol. But not all that wheezes is asthma, and it's important to understand the pathophysiology of bronchiolitis in order to pull yourself away from those previously cemented beliefs. There is definitely inflammation that contributes to wheezing and bronchiolitis, but remember that much of the airway obstruction comes from mucus buildup and the sloughing of necrotic epithelial tissue in the small airways. It can feel really helpless to have a severe bronchiolytic with tachypnea and retractions outside of a hospital setting where your resources are limited. You follow the guidelines and suction with saline, but there's no improvement and your patient is still in respiratory distress. Then what? The fallback is to think albuterol or racemic epi is going to help you, but our guidelines tell us that they won't. So what do you do? Essentially, get them to an acute care setting like the emergency department or a direct admission. Some children need monitoring or IV fluids, while others need actual respiratory support, like high-flow nasal cannula to provide positive pressure, or in the worst-case scenario, intubation with mechanical ventilation. Let's pretend for a minute that we're back in 2006. I'm wearing my bootcut jeans and chandelier earrings, and Borat's mustache has just hit the big screen, not the runway. The current bronchiolitis guidelines back then suggested that a trial of albuterol was an option for clinicians, which is one reason that I think we still see this practice so often today. But the AAP changed their minds in the next set of guidelines after nearly a decade of additional evidence. It's okay for the guidelines to change, and it's important for you to change with them, with a keen understanding of why, and to what degree the recommendations matter. I mean, we used to have liquid albuterol, which I still occasionally see from time to time, believe it or not. And thankfully, practices that don't work get retired. These guidelines represent years of research by dozens of people much smarter than me who have collected literally hundreds of articles in support of these recommendations. It's also valuable to understand what guidelines are telling us to do because they're making broad generalizations based on the highest quality evidence in the literature that represents the most current data on the subject, but they don't know the individual patient sitting in front of you. Academic groups use scales to classify the quality of their recommendations based on their evidence and to distinguish other characteristics of their approach, such as identifying risk and benefit. This is the meaning behind the parentheses at the end of each listed recommendation, stating something like, evidence quality C, recommendation weak. Well, in that case, and with your own clinical judgment, as well as their transparent list of references and methodology, you can make your own judgments on whether you believe C-level evidence and a weak recommendation warrants adherence in the face of a clinical choice. That's why I love reading articles every week. This Condella et al. article points to the trends that equate to pop culture norms and attempts to explain why we do what we do. The authors go on to point out that we may need more research on understanding the underlying characteristics of these albuterol responders that may improve our approach to certain patient populations. 
Maybe there is significant bronchoconstriction for albuterol responders. Maybe the airway diameter of older infants is large enough to see clinically significant changes after a certain age. Or maybe the nebulized liquid acts like steam. Who knows in those individual cases? I know that there are sometimes that I grasp at straws and want to do something, maybe hypertonic saline. So I look at the guidelines, evidence quality B, recommendation strength weak, based on randomized controlled trials with inconsistent findings. It's only for inpatients and may shorten their hospital stay if the length of stay is greater than 72 hours, but might also cause wheezing or excess secretions. There are so many nuances in an individual patient situation that can affect your decision, and you have to make some tough decisions sometimes that the guidelines won't have an answer for. But if you read them thoughtfully, you'll see that you can get a good barometer on who can go home, so babies with SATs over 90% with mild or moderate distress, who are feeding greater than 50% of their usual intake, have a reliable caretaker, and the ability to obtain follow-up care on the short term if needed. You can also get some ideas on what to do for the ones who need to stay. IV or NG fluids, antipyretics, and suction. While at the same time giving you a gut check on the really tempting orders that bring no benefit to the patient and might even cause harm. So chest x-ray, albuterol, steroids, chest PT, and antibiotics. And for my primary care providers out there, there's a whole category on prevention, like promoting breastfeeding, hand hygiene, family education, and avoidance of tobacco smoke. Are we just as non-adherent to guidelines if we forget to promote disease prevention before our patients even get sick? Who knows, we might even see these same topics come up again in 10 years, and we'll be saying, ew. Remember when we suctioned patients with a Frida and more skinny jeans? New research shapes how future guidelines will look on the runway of provider practice. Read every line so you can shape your practice. But just like my beret, be willing to change your mind. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.